Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Hello, thank you for tuning in. My guest today is the outstanding and accomplished drummer, Scott Lanningham. Scott has been playing the drums for over 40 years. Though he's best known as a jazz drummer, he's equally comfortable playing soul, blues, and rock. He's performed and recorded with Eric Johnson, Mitch Watkins, Alejandro Escovedo, Christopher Cross, Kat Edmondson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and many, many more. He also happens to be a modern-day Renaissance man. In addition to drumming, Scott is also a vocalist, voice actor, landscape designer, writer, and video producer. You can usually catch him performing live with Alejandro Escovedo or Church on Monday, who play every Monday night at the Continental Club Gallery in Austin. Minutes into my conversation with Scott, it became clear that he is a lucid communicator and has great introspection. I think you'll agree after you listen to the episode. Here we go. Scott, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you. Grateful to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, my pleasure. Um, let's start in the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in Dallas, Texas, in actually south of Dallas in a, the suburb of Oak Cliff, which I actually share in common with Ephraim Owens, a great trumpet player here in town. You know, we've, we've talked about that. And we both come from the same neighborhood, same hood. Um, my father was a, a recent graduate of Baylor Dental School, and my mother was a student at SMU studying music and theater. And uh, they got together, and I was a pretty quick result. Uh, we were on, only in Dallas just for a couple of years, and then we went home to where my father came from, which was Borger, Texas, in the Texas Panhandle. Lived there for about nine years. Very stark area, if anybody's ever been there. Very flat, barren. Some farmland, but, but the area we were in was very oil uh, company country. Phillips Petroleum, I think, comes from there. There's a town called Phillips right oh, wow. near Borger. But after about seven or eight years there, he got enough of that and wanted to move to Colorado. So I was in Colorado until I was in ninth grade, and then my father passed away when I was young, and we moved back to Texas and finished out high school in Amarillo, the exotic capital of <laughs> North Texas. <laughs> you preempted uh, my next question, which was um, to tell me about music in your family and uh, if anyone played musical instruments and what kind of music they listened to. Your mom studied music? She did, and she was uh, she, she in musical theater in particular, uh, beautiful voice. Um, my father saw her for the first time on stage, I wow. think, in maybe one of the Texas State Fair musicals. She mm -hmm. used to perform in those. They used to have big musicals at the Texas State Fair back in the day, and she was, a, she was in some Dr. Pepper ads and uh -huh. things like that. And um, he also loved jazz and uh, other popular music of the time, but he was definitely a big jazz fan. My mom, not so much familiar with it, but the two of them kind of came together, I think, around music and performance. He played a little bit of bass, and that's how it was introduced to me in the household, was a lot of great recordings and, and sitting around the piano and singing songs, and I, I remember that from as as early as I can, and I was named after a friend of theirs that was a guitarist. My mm -hmm. first name, Paul. I don't go by that name, but somebody named Paul that played guitar. I met him <laughs> once and heard him. <laughs> so you had a piano at home? We did. My my mom always had some kind of piano. Uh, 
mostly I remember a baby grand sitting in the house, and and even if no other furniture was making it on a trip to a new house, that piano always came along. Did you play at all? I played piano a little bit when I was young. They started me on piano, and I was learning very quickly, you know, at the age of five or so. And then when we moved to Colorado, the the lesson stopped. The teacher wasn't there anymore, and sadly, I drifted away from it. I wished I'd played more piano because I loved the instrument. But uh, then it, it became trumpet and other things after that. Oh, trumpet. Uh, so in between starting and, and reaching the drums, was it piano first, then trumpet, anything else? Piano and, of course, singing. Everybody was always singing in our house. Uh, trumpet, I, fifth grade, I think, is when... Maybe it's still that way when you're in grade school and they're they're going to start band, right? right? And they say, okay, what instrument? And uh, I remember I wasn't open for discussion. Dad said, here's a cornet. I have one. You're playing. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved the trumpet uh, or the cornet at the time. And uh, But we had a snare drum in the house. Mm-hmm. He just had some different instruments around. He also had an acoustic bass. He played a little bit of acoustic bass and played some in college with friends. So... I would pluck on that thing or I'd get that snare drum out. We didn't have any sticks, but we had some brushes. Mm-hmm. And I would try to figure out how to make a sound like I heard on his records. But but at first I had no idea what I was doing until someone showed me how to hold the brushes and mm-hmm. make make that stirring motion, you know. But But it was pretty much trumpet with a total band focus on trumpet until maybe about 12 or 13. And that's when they caved and bought me a pawn shop drum set for Christmas. So you had your eye on and ears on the drum set all along? I think so. You know, I don't remember when it became interesting to me. I just loved music in general. I mean, I, I, I'm not one of those drummers that I've just got to play the drums. You know, I want the image, I, I rhythm, that's my whole thing. And I, I, I love music Almost more from, I guess, a conductor's viewpoint. I really love everything about it. But rhythm, of course, is a big part of it. And I think I must have gravitated to the drums at that age, maybe when a lot of people are, hey, I want to see what that feels like mm-hmm. to play those. That's cool. <laughs> and I was inspired by the the TV show Hawaii Five O. I wanted to be able to play. <laughs> I wanted to be able to do that. You know, so that's the first thing I tried to play. And... Um, and off we went from there. You know, it just became such a natural thing for me. I learned it so rapidly. All the instruments, when I spend any time with them, for me, they seem to come fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. But drums was an obsession. I mean, I as soon as I got that drum set, I would spend hours almost every day in the basement playing to records. And I, I don't know that anything in my life has ever quite hit me like that, where I just had to do it all the time. I see a pattern there in that I hear so many guests talk about, and I read interviews with musicians where once they discovered, once they tapped into what would eventually become their instrument, their their main instrument, it took over their lives and they stopped doing nearly everything else. And that seems like such a powerful experience and in many ways explains the way in which all of these artists, including yourself, reach the levels that you reach and that you you just become so focused on on getting better and better at this one thing. You, you mentioned that you played uh, along to records in your basement. What kind of music did you usually play along to? You know, it was a very interesting blend of music. My dad had a very large record collection. I think he had 1,000 LPs. Wow. And he built a bookcase into the living room 
he made a built-in bookcase for the records, and he had them all categorized by singers and certain big bands and certain kind of combos, and it was really cool. It was I could sort through, and he had a lot of comedy too. Uh-huh. Um, but I played with, I think the things I gravitated to the most, it wasn't what you would call a real comprehensive jazz collection, a historian of jazz's type collection. Um, he had a lot of of West Coast jazz, not a lot of East Coast or, you know, the New York scene. He had some, uh, he had some miles, but really that was kind of West Coast by the time, you know, the the uh, birth of the cool and kind of blue. I, I think people thought of that more as West Coast at mm-hmm. that point. I could be wrong. But Dave Brubeck, uh, uh, quite a few big bands. He loved a lot of singers, Sinatra, uh, Nancy Wilson, Carmen McRae were favorites of his. And he liked these vocal groups like the Four Freshmen and the High Lows, later the Singers Unlimited. My mom's influence was stuff like the Raycon of Singers, you know, and, and uh, albums from from Broadway shows, Broadway show records. So I played along with that stuff too. And the Carpenters, my mom was really into the Carpenters and loved them. Uh, and I did too. And uh, and some of the pop music of the time, the gentler, softer stuff, the Carol King, James Taylor kind of stuff. That that stuff came out of the you know the late '60s, I guess, early '70s. So it was a blend of that. I didn't play a lot of hard bop. I wasn't exposed to much of that. That really kind of came later, in college years. Really, it was mostly big band, and I guess West Coast was almost like the smooth jazz of the day, mm-hmm. but a lot more, a lot more varied and substantial, at least from my perspective compared to what's popular now in that in that line, you know. What music were your friends listening to? Kiss. No, wait, Kiss came later. <laughs> they were listening to Grand Funk and uh, Led Zeppelin and uh, the latter years of the Beatles and um, country music, especially up in Colorado. It was a lot of folk music and country and and John Denver, you know, and, and I like that stuff too. Stevie Wonder. I mean, there was some Motown that I got a little exposure to, but the, but you know, the place where I lived in Colorado was so small. There was one television station. We didn't even get all the networks (laughs) and there was precious little radio. The town I lived in was only 550 people when we moved there up in the mountains. So my dad's record collection was, was really where the music world began and ended for me until we moved back to Texas in 1975. You mentioned that you did enjoy some of the music that your friends listened to. Did it ever creep into your drum world or that sphere of your life? I wanted to play anything I could get my hands on. And that's, that's what I found interesting about what playing along with records did to me. I, it was almost like there was this built-in sense of this is how I was going to be taught and I needed to listen to as much variety as possible. Because there wasn't anything about those Broadway records that excited me necessarily, like the jazz stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to know what would I do if I was playing in the in the pit with uh, Oklahoma or something like that, you know. And uh, and I also began to hear that some of those tunes were being covered by jazz artists. You know, I remember a J.J. Johnson trombone record, and he's playing "Hello, Young Lovers." You know, from The King and I, right? Didn't isn't that the movie that? Hello, Young Lovers came from? I'm not sure. I think so. So I liked to play as much as I could, and I wanted to play the stuff that I heard my friends playing on their record players, but my dad wasn't really into that and didn't want rock and roll in the house. The Carpenters was about as rocking as it got (laughs) for us back then. 
I uh, understand that you started playing professionally in high school. How did that happen? After my father passed away and we moved to Amarillo, Texas, really rough time in life. You know, I was, I was uh, lost for a bit that first year. And when we got to the new school, I mean, think about this. Amarillo is not a big town to people that live in Austin. But when you move from a town of 500 people to a town where the high school is four times the size of the town you came from, that was pretty overwhelming. I mean, the class I got in, I, I was in at the time, was probably 500 kids, more, 600, the, the sophomore class. And so band became kind of the, the lifesaver for me, I think, and especially the jazz band. They had this jazz band, and this trumpet player named Mike Harris had just started working at Amarillo High School, good jazz trumpet player, and he had started a jazz ensemble. And he heard me... Well, the first year, I played trumpet in his trumpet section. But at the end of the sophomore year, he, his drummers were gone. His, his, the guy had, had been playing graduated. So he had open auditions for the drum chair. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew how to play swing. The guy that had played before me really didn't either, but he was a good drummer, good time, and he pulled the band through. But here we were with no drummer. And a couple of my friends that had been over to my house many times knew that I played the drums at home all the time with a lot of the records where the material was coming from that we were playing in this big band. And they all encouraged me to try out for the band. So I did. And at first he was reluctant to let me do it. And, but he said, okay, sure, why not? And I sat down and played like, you know, I don't know, 10 bars of a Woody Herman song, Wailing in the Woodshed, Woody Herman's big band. And I could just see the, the look on the band director's face, Mr. Harris. And he was like, you got the gig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it wasn't, sh but shortly thereafter that he invited me to come. I was 17 at the time. And uh, substitute for the drummer with a local society band who was at the time the drummer was going into rehab. And uh, the band had no drummer. And everybody in the band was, you know, 20 at least years older than I was, it seemed, plus. Uh, and I'd never played in a setting like that, but I said, okay. And I thought, am I going to know this material? And it's amazing how many of the songs I did know. But uh, that's how I began playing in Amarillo with a band called the Tiffany Brass that played parties, country clubs, uh, dinner, supper club kind of things. And we played all around the panhandle. And for the next two years, I played with that band a lot, often every weekend. And I learned so much from those guys, from the trumpet player uh, as well as the other horn player in the band, two of them, which were from Lubbock that drove up to play these gigs, a famous uh, trombone player from the swing era that lived in Lubbock, lovely player named Mark Anthony, uh, Dave Ritter, another excellent trumpet player who was a teacher at West Texas State University, and then the bass player at the time, Bart Edwards was his name, and he taught me everything about time and feel and how to not rush when I'm playing a bassy kind of swing, what it means to lay back on a figure. So that was a, a just a wonderful school for me through those last few years of, of high school. Hearing you describe this, it sounds like a very sudden transition from I play drums in the basement to I'm first here, I'm playing drums in the jazz ensemble, and I'm playing professionally. Were you lacking in confidence, or were you pretty confident going into this transition? That's a very good question. 
You know, I'm, I'm, as I reflect back, I can't remember how I felt. But I, I knew that, you know, it's, it's funny. People used to say to me, uh, who have you played with? You know, because that's something you'll ask somebody when they want to play with you or sitting right. with you. Who have you played with? You know, <laughs> I hadn't played with anybody yet. But I used to say, oh, I've played with Woody Herman and, you know, Dave Brubeck uh-huh, and, right. and all that stuff. But it was only half joking because at that point in time at 17... I would imagine that I had, gosh, I don't know how to calculate how many hours I spent playing, but I'm sure by that time I had logged the equivalent of a typical musician's two or three years worth of playing. That's how much I played with those records. And I would play with them over and over and over, studying what the drummer did with through my ears, you know, but also trying to figure out what I wanted to do to make it different. So I'm not sure that I, I'm, I'm sure I was nervous when I did that audition, but there was something inside of me that after a year of playing in the band, I already was of this kind of leadership mindset of, you know, these musicians don't listen to this music, so they don't understand how it's supposed to go. And the drums are so critical in a big band. If the drummer doesn't swing, the band is not going to swing. So I was like, let's do this thing. (laughs) And then, you know, I think playing the first time with that society band, I was a little nervous as well. But but the band director, Mike Harris, instilled so much confidence in me. He, from the get-go, and, you know, he didn't, uh, as they... As people will say sometimes, I don't know, blow wind up somebody's skirt or whatever the phrase might be. He he didn't, what would you say? I mean, he didn't overpraise me to the point of keeping me from wanting to grow and things like that. But he did give me a, a lot of confidence in stepping into situations and trying things that, that I might otherwise be reluctant to try. And there were many things like that that he encouraged me to do. And I'm, I'm profoundly grateful for his influence in my life. He really, in many ways, filled the role that was the, the void that was left by my father's passing. And I didn't realize that at the time. But years later, I look back on it and I realize how true it was. And I've told him that, too. He really did fill an important need in my life. I'm sure that was special to him to hear that from you. Yeah, he said so. Upon graduating from high school, what were your plans? What were you thinking of doing? What role did music play in your future plans? Well, at the time, um, I wanted to go to, which was then called North Texas State University, or now it's, what is it, uh, the University of North Texas, I think. Which I understand has a renowned uh, music program. And there's a number of great drummers that have come out of it. Oh, yeah. Very, very renowned program. Still a very big school. One of the, probably one of the top three music schools in the country for professional musicians outside of only focusing on a classical, an orchestral career. Although they have that too. They were a, a huge feeding system of young players into what were still the surviving big bands of the time, like Maynard Ferguson Orchestra, which C. Elias Haslanger played in, you know, my my um, companion in church on Monday and good friend. And uh, Eli didn't go to North Texas State, but many of the players like him did. And a lot of horn players, a lot of rhythm section players, as you mentioned. And it was very, very big in in the 70s. And still is, but it was in the seventies. the 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 original head of the program, Leon Breeden, was still there. Extremely competitive place. 
There was a brass teacher there named Rich Madison who was brilliant and could play jazz tuba. I mean, he could play anything that had a mouthpiece you know, <laughs> and, and do amazing things with it. And he came and clinicked our band in Amarillo. And I got to play with him in our performance together. And then I played in a small combo that involved he and the trumpet player that was the, the director of our program, as well as some of these other senior uh, kind of professional musicians around Austin. I mean, excuse me, Amarello at the time, including a great guitar player named Mike Nace, who lives in Houston now. And Rich heard me and he said, you need to come to North Texas. I didn't even really know what it was, but he began to talk about it. And the, a trumpet player friend of mine in the band, a very close friend named Ron Noblet, we both decided to go to North Texas. So that became everything. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a professional musician. I really loved playing. I had no idea what it was going to take, and I was totally unprepared. I could hardly read drum music, but I because I would memorize <laughs> I would memorize the songs off the records, and then I would go play these performances with the band, and I might look at the music a little bit if, to make sure I knew where I was. But you know, I wasn't a very good reader at all, and uh, and I wasn't a trained drummer. I had not learned my rudiments. I did not come up that way. I just grabbed sticks and brushes and I started playing with records. I had my own technique in a way. You know, I approximated what I saw, you know, trained drummers doing. And so when I got to North Texas, it was a very humbling experience. How did you respond to this? At first, I, I kind of gave in to the self-pity at first. You know, I had to audition for the lab band program. They have 12 official bands, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, all the way to 12 o'clock, the one o'clock being the pinnacle of the program. Amazing players have come out of there. Lyle Mays from the Pat Metheny group, um, Greg Bissonette, the drummer for uh, so many people, who was also there when I was there. He was rooming just down the hall from me. Wow. Um, Lou Marini, you know, from the Saturday Night Live band and uh, I mean, just a long, long list of great players. And so I had to set up an audition in front of a line of about eight teachers, professors in the program. And so I was very nervous and I couldn't really read. And it must have looked like I walked in off the street, <laughs> never seen a drum set in my life and was trying to audition for this band. So under the circumstances of how I must have performed, they were probably pretty kind when they said, well, would you like to be in one of the sight-reading bands? Because they had bands outside of those 12 where you would go if you really didn't have any reading chops at all. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, sir, I would, to all of them. And I did that for a semester, but I kind of lost my focus. I didn't have a lot of self-discipline beyond just playing with records. I didn't really know how to practice. They hooked me up with a teacher in Dallas named Jim Vaughn, wonderful drummer that was very influential, just even over the course of uh, maybe eight or ten lessons with me. It's about all I had before I left Denton. But he helped me begin to learn how to, how to practice, just technique. And I did a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I did some of that. And, uh, but, the, uh, but when I auditioned for the, uh, the percussion program there, you know, which I shouldn't have done because I wasn't a percussionist. I was a drummer and a trumpet player. I wasn't a percussionist. I didn't play, you know, 
orchestral snare and marimba and all that kind of stuff. And they told me so much. They said, why are you here? Mm -hmm. What are you doing here? And uh, it really made me question where I was going next. So I, I kind of lost focus for a while. I decided to go back home to Amarillo. I went to junior college. I, I went into broadcast uh, news and, and mass comm studies because I also liked that stuff. That, that was probably other, the other thing that had really interested me in life to that point that I spent time with was pretending I was a radio talk show host. Did you continue playing drums throughout? I did. When I went back to Amarillo, I still played some with that society band, you know, although they had others that were playing with them since I had left. And um, I got involved with my old high school band director, the trumpet player, and some other musicians in, um, in, at West Texas State University, and we formed a little jazz fusion band. For lack of a better name, we called it Amajam, <laughs> <laughs> which was a combination of Amarillo and jam, you know. And that was my first experience with the blending of rock and jazz, mm -hmm. really. And that was, that was fun. That, that taught me some things, too. After junior college, what came next? After junior college, moved to Austin. It was time to see where I was headed next. My mom said, why don't you go to the University of Texas in Austin? I'd never thought about it. I didn't know anything about Austin. She was actually very proactive, and she kind of investigated where she thought a great mass comm school would be. And UT is very famous for its RTF school. So I said, okay, cool. And it just so happened that Austin is this music town that it is. So it was really a blessing to come here for me. Um, I was kind of at a point when I didn't, I didn't know if music was still going to be all that much in my life. And at my mom's encouragement of coming down here, just shortly after hitting town, I walked down Congress Avenue and I began to hear this music. I remember the first thing I heard was this wonderful singer, Julie Christensen. I heard her with a great bassist in town, Spencer Starnes, a wonderful guitarist that I don't know where he is now, um, Fred Walters and a drummer named Ernie Durawa, who is a great local player and a big influence on me. And um, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. I, I'm in heaven, you know? So I began to go around and hear people. That's when I first saw Mitch Watkins and this group Passenger, and I saw Beto in the Fairlanes, and I saw the blues going on at Antones, and, and I knew I wanted to be a part of all that. I didn't have a path into it yet. Later on, I got involved with all these people. And one of them was Mitch Watkins, a wonderful guitarist, part of the group Passenger. After Passenger dissolved around 1981 or so, it was kind of a long dissolving. The, one of the key members in the band, Roscoe Beck, moved to L.A. The band continued to play as a quartet. That's when I met them and began to sub with them. But eventually... Their careers took them in different directions, so the band really wasn't together. And Mitch Watkins, a bass player named Steve Zirkel, and Paul Ostermeyer, who was the saxophone player from Passenger, we had begun to play together with other people in town. So we decided to form something new, and it was called the Mitch Watkins Group. It was mostly Mitch's music, original music, and uh, some by Paul and then some that we wrote together as a group. And we began to record, still to this day, some music that I just think is so fantastic. And it, a lot of it never saw the light of day, certainly not as a record underneath the group name. Mitch later 
had a record deal and released some of the material in, in different forms with other musicians. I read that you moved to New York City for about a year in 1985. What prompted that? I had gotten out of UT. It's a funny story because I'd started to move to LA because, you know, I had these competing interests, right? I, I came out of RTF school. I was interested in film. I'd studied writing, screenwriting. I really thought I wanted to do that. I went out to LA in the summer and I stayed with family and I met some people. TriStar Pictures was starting a studio at the time. That was the beginning of TriStar. I was offered a job to be a, a script reader and I thought I was going to go to LA. But I came back home to get my stuff and Mitch said, man, we need to record before you leave to see what some of this stuff sounds like in the Mitch Watkins group. So I recorded with them, and we did one public performance, and we were all so thrilled with this music that he decided to go to New York. So I went with him to visit a record label up there that had shown interest in Passenger, and he thought now would be interested in this material. So I just dropped everything, moved to New York with Mitch, only half the band went, Mitch and I. The other half stayed in Austin, working at the Hyatt <laughs> Hotel. But, you know, musicians have to pay the bills, right? So we all went to New York, and I mean, half of us, and that's, that's why I spent a year in Manhattan, which was quite an adventure. Before we talk about that, give me a, an update on where your confidence level was at this point. I was at a high in my confidence level. People wanted to use me in their bands. People asked me to play with them. Steve Metter, the drummer with Passenger at the time, who was the, he was the main drummer in town. I mean, he and another guy named John Mambo Trainer, at least in the scene that I was the most familiar with. And I mentioned Ernie Durawa as well. There were other great drummers, uh, Paul Piercy, many good players. But Steve was my mentor. He was the biggest reason I started to work as much as I did. And that resulted in a huge confidence boost because I went from kind of the outside looking into the scene, wishing I could be a part of it, almost overnight when Mitch first heard me, invited me to sit in with Passenger, and Steve Metter began immediately giving me work and, and subbing even the Passenger gig to me sometimes. And it was, it was, it was wonderful. I, I, I remember that feeling as much as I do some of the biggest things you experience in life, like when you get married or when mm -hmm. you have a child. I'll never forget the, the way I just felt this warm glow <laughs> come over me of, oh my gosh, I can play like I hear in my head. Because when you play with players like this, when you play with really, really great musicians with big ears, something happens that it's, it's hard to explain. There's another level of communication and creation that happens that I, that I had never experienced anything quite like that before with all the other situations that I'd been involved in. And some of them were a lot of fun, but they were, there was always a level of kind of conscious holding stuff together or playing a premeditated kind of approach to the creation that was going on. Suddenly with these guys... It was like it, I was just an open window and things were flowing through me. That's the way it felt. And so, yeah, when we moved to New York in 85, Mitch and I, I, I felt very good. I still knew how much I needed to learn because, you know, as you listen to the great masters, 
There's nothing like a reminder of sitting down and trying to play with that recording and going, holy cow, <laughs> listen to what that drummer is doing. That, listen to what Steve Gadd's doing or, or Peter Erskine or whoever I was listening to at the time. But uh, I felt very good at the time. I was in a very good place. And when, interestingly, uh, when I left town, the day before I left town, Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel called me. I remember that phone call. Picked it up. Hello, Scott. This is Ray Benson. I mean, it's pretty distinctive voice. Pretty hard to fake that voice. And he offered me the gig in Asleep at the Wheel. And I couldn't believe that here I, I was getting this offer. It wasn't exactly the music that I was into at the time. I mean, I was doing this fusion jazz. But Sleep at the Wheel, I mean, that's a big deal. I would have loved to have done that. But I turned it down because I wanted to go to New York. So that shows you how I, much I felt, how strongly I felt about this this path that I thought I was on, you know. Tell me about that year in New York. It was a rough year. We got to New York. Island closed the Antilles label that we would have been on if we had signed a deal. They sent us to talk to Bruce Lundvall at Electra Musician. Same thing happened there. Electra closed down. It was kind of a giant collapsing of jazz labels at the time. I don't know what was going on in the industry in the mid-80s, but it did seem that many doors were closing and new ones were opening like GRP and some of those labels. But it, it wasn't, nothing was unfolding. And of course, only half the band was there, so we couldn't go play gigs. And Mitch had played many times with Leonard Cohen, the great Leonard Cohen. Leonard was about to go on tour. He asked Mitch to go with him. So Mitch was going to go to Europe for three or four months. Off went Mitch, and I was alone in New York with no contacts and no prospects. You know, I almost went on that tour, too. It's, it's, that's a little aside story, and I'll make it brief. But Mitch called me the week that they were leaving to go to Hamburg to begin that, that European tour with Leonard Cohen. The drummer at the time had been AWOL for a couple of weeks, had a substance abuse issue apparently or something, but, you know, nobody had seen him. He said, why don't you come to this last rehearsal? You never know what might happen. I went to the rehearsal in Soho. There was a drum set there. I forgot to bring any drumsticks. There weren't any sticks. There was a cup with some ballpoint pens <laughs> in it. And Leonard walked in and he said, would you like to play some time for us so we can practice this music? And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> I grabbed those big pins and jumped on the drums. And he loved it. I mean, we started playing. And you know how quiet drums would be if you were playing them with two big pins? Well, that's pretty much the, the volume level that Leonard likes it, the drums. <laughs> and so I played, and he looked over at me and gave me that A-OK sign, oh, you know, wow. and I just thought, wow, cool. The, unfortunately, the tips came off the pins and ink got all over everything. Mm. But at the end of the tune, he asked me if I wanted to go to Europe. He said, I don't know where the drummer is. Would you like to go? And I said, absolutely. I, I was so thrilled. That was another one of those moments, like I described earlier, when you felt a warm glow coming over you. So I ran home, and I started to get ready for the trip, pack and everything. But unfortunately, a few hours later, I got a call and said, well, the other guy showed up at the last minute, <sighs> and, and they and they did changed their mind and took him back. So. Oh, that must have been crushing. Yeah, and so that kind of was the tone for the year in New York. You know, those kinds of things. I heard some great music. I took a couple of lessons from the great Peter Erskine. That was one of the big positives, getting to know him and, and having a friendship with him. I'd always been an admirer of, of Peter. And uh, 
I heard some great artists. Woody Shaw at the Village Vanguard, the Mel Lewis big band there. I saw the Breckers at 7th Avenue South, which was a club they had at the time with other people. A lot of Mike Stern, you know. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff. And so I went to see a lot of comedy, too. So I I explored a lot and experienced a lot. I think I played three gigs in a year, which was torture for me, having played all the time back in Austin. And I just didn't have the contacts, and I wasn't... I've never been a very aggressive person to get out there and really sell myself and really work the scene to make the contacts, and I suffered because of that. But um, we finally did play, finally got the Mitch Watkins group to come to town. When Mitch got back from the tour, I got the other two guys to come up, Steve Zirkel and Paul Ostermeyer, and we did play one time in New York at a club called McKell's, which is no longer there on the Upper West Side. And it was quite an evening. There were 50 people there, and I invited every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and we played our, our high-energy jazz fusion, and Pat McKill, the owner of the club, really liked us. The, the clincher of the night was Stevie Ray Vaughan was in town playing at the Cool Jazz Festival. And we all knew him. What, from is Austin. this 85? 85. So a couple of years after Texas Flood? Right. And he, we, we knew him because it wasn't many years before that that he was still playing Antones and Liberty Lunch in Austin. Mm-hmm. And after he finished his big set at the Cool Jazz Festival, I think it was at the Lincoln Center, he came to our gig and he played in, during our last set with us. A number of tunes, and a lot of people started flooding into the club <laughs> that hadn't been there before, and that was a real thrill. That what was music a, did he did he uh, did he play some jazz with you, or did you play some blues? You know, I can't remember. I think we we must have just we must have just played a standard or two, or played some blues, you know, or took some standards and made them into blues rock right. tunes or something. I can't even remember what we played. I just remember him coming into the room and the energy level, which was already high just how electric the atmosphere was as he got up on stage and played with us and how cool that was after playing that set that he came and did that, you know? And Mitch knew him well. And uh, and afterwards, we all sat at a table with Stevie Ray and Pat McKell, the owner of the club, and she was just in heaven. I mean, you know, she idolized Stevie Ray and the opportunity to get to meet him, and I think that certainly upped our our value with her. And afterwards she said, Oh, you guys need to move here and I'll book you whenever you want to play. And I'll talk you up around New York with other clubs and all that, but just didn't happen. You know, people's lives in the band, just, we, we were all different ages and different needs and different ideas about the future. And it just didn't come together. So they didn't move up. The rest of the band stayed. The other guys stayed in Austin. Mitch went back out on the road, and, <laughs> and, I, and I bailed on New York at that time. I'd had enough. It was tough. Did you move back to Austin? I did. I came back to Austin briefly. I played a little bit. It wasn't the same. I'd been away long enough that, you know, you do that. You go away, and other people fill those, those roles for you. Mm-hmm. So I came back, and I played some. But that's, that's when I thought I was just done with music. I left and I went off to Boston and I worked in radio broadcasting, radio news. Took a job in Boston, later met my wife and, you know, for the next few years was really kind of doing that type of thing, not not in music at all. What was your reintroduction to music or what happened to bring you back? There's a pianist in, in Houston named Paul English 
And out of the blue, he called me in 1989 and offered me a job as, as the house band drummer with his band in Houston. Were you why, in Boston at the time? I was in Boston. Now, why he called me or thought that I would be good for it when I hadn't been playing for three years and I didn't even live in Texas was amazing. I don't know what prompted him to do it, but he was the impetus because we were both, my wife and I had just been married. We were kind of trying to find our feet together and neither of us were happy in our jobs at the time and wanting to do something different. So we just bailed on what we were doing, moved to Houston, and I started playing in that band with Paul English and uh, and then played around town in Houston with some others. Uh, it was the beginning of a few years of nomad-like living. We were there for a while. We actually went back through Amarillo for a little bit when I was continually kind of job hunting. Worked at a PBS station, TV station for a while. Then moved to Dallas. Wrote music for a production house that does music production libraries for radio and TV where you know you can needle drop to have instrumental music backing for things. I did that for a while, wrote, I, I, I was just all over the place for a few years and eventually came back to Austin in 1996. And um, so I, I guess we've been here, what, 20 years now? And that's when it really, we really kind of got back to a feeling of home. And there's something about this town, I think ever since those formative experiences for me, it's just there's, there, I love visiting other places and I love being in other places, but this is really where I want to live. I'm going to have a somewhat long lead up to my next question. And it's based on an article that the producer, Steve Albini, actually it wasn't an article, it was a speech that he gave in which he said that the internet nearly destroyed the record industry, but he, he argues that it actually made things better for musicians. Uh, because it made it easier for musicians to record their music, to find an audience, to collaborate with other musicians, and to charge more money for live shows. And he said that the music industry shrunk, and this in turn, and I'm quoting him, wrung out the middle, leaving the bands and the audiences to work out their relationships from the ends. His assessment is that current audiences are willing to pay more money to see live music. In reading his speech, a lot of what he says makes sense, but I have trouble reconciling his assessment with anecdotal evidence of how little most musicians get paid to play live. What is your assessment of what has changed in the past 30, 40 years for a musician who is trying to make his living by playing live? <laughs> wow. There are many layers to that question, but it is the question of our time. With, for musicians and for audiences that care about music and music with variety. And um, I don't know if I agree with him. I do understand the value of some of the things he's talking about. I certainly love that innovation has given us tools to realize composition more rapidly. I love that the Internet has made it possible to reach out directly to audiences but I also see counter trends that are very destructive, you know, and they're not all related to the technology. I mean, some of them are related to the times we live in and the depleted value of the dollar and things like that. I think one of the things that troubles me the most about the current situation is with the generations coming up 
and this isn't everybody. I mean, I never want to sound like I'm making some general statement, but I see too much of this kind of reality show. I want to be famous. I'm getting into this because of the fame it can bring me or because I can be up on a big stage in front of a bunch of people and feel the rush of being worshipped or screamed after or whatever. And I wonder, I know there are still musicians, singers, performers that are getting into art because they're just curious and because they love it and and it just feels good to do it and it has nothing to do with the audience. I've got to know that's true. I'm sure it is. But it was a lot easier to assume that's what was going on before all of this easy interaction with the extremes of fame and celebrity. I mean, because, you know, I didn't have, I only had one TV station, right? And I didn't have any internet and I just had a record collection. And I wonder if I could have learned what I learned and it would have been willing to spend the time that I spent with those records in today's world. Now, they're so much easier to get. You can have them on your phone. You can put in Bluetooth earbuds and listen 24-7. But because I had to, because I had to find a place in the house to put the drums, because I had to set up near my dad's speakers, because I had to go around the corner to where the turntable was and pull the album out of its sleeve and stick it down on the turntable, and I had to do all these physical things make these choices, get up and do them. I think that was all part of what gave me the drive to to keep doing it. And sometimes things are so easy now. I even face that sometimes with my, my own children, who I see a lot of talent in. But it's it's tough for them. I feel for them because I don't see that same willingness to just spend the time and it's maybe it's not even willingness. They're so distracted by so much all the time. And, you know, as a parent, I've been down different roads. You know, can I protect them from it by just saying, you can't have it? <laughs> well, that doesn't work very well, you know. So something's going to have to give for the music that we've loved and that, and that we continue to hope for new forms and new sounds, new things to come our way. I think there's going to have to be some kind of balancing trend against some of this stuff to keep it all alive. Because I, right now, it, it looks kind of bleak to me. There may be a lot of live performance. And people may be willing to pay more money. But not for everybody, they're not. They're willing to pay $300 to see Stevie Wonder. But sometimes they're not even willing to pay a dollar to see a great local performer. And I think that that has something to do with this worship of celebrity, you know? And I think thing, the, the social media platforms kind of promote that in a way, very much promoted in a way. And so everybody's in this mad rush after being noticed. And when you're, when you're so focused on wanting to be seen, how much looking do you do? To be heard, how much listening do you do? I kind of think that's the part of the challenge of it all. But again, that's kind of negative. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I think it's all negative. I do think there are positives because it used to be, you know, you couldn't get a record out unless you signed away everything or this was during those 
those years when there weren't so many small labels, right? But there have always been some. And maybe it was the scarcity of the opportunity that drove people to really work on their craft, to try to have an opportunity to get something out there. Now, you might say sometimes it's so easy to put something out that people think as soon as they learn how to play four scales, they're going to put a record out. There's a lot of that going on. <laughs> and then so you get a lot, you get kind of a crowded field of, of product. Some of it is really weak and some of it gets boosted up to this level of, of art and recognized as art where it doesn't belong. And you get audiences confused by that too, you know? So I don't know, boy, it's a, that's a, you could probably have a long seminar on that. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. You perform often. And, uh, I, I saw you perform, I want to say it was three weeks ago. It was the first time I saw church on Monday and, and it was electric. It was, uh, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it would be high quality, high quality performance and high quality music, but just the, the way in which the audience got into it and the level of energy, it just, it was, it was electric. It was incredible. And I can only imagine that it makes it incredibly enjoyable for the performers to be part of that and to, and to witness that and, and to generate that energy and interact with the crowd. Do you ever dread having a show or do you always look forward to playing? What does performing mean to you? Sometimes I, I don't know if dread is ever quite the term. Sometimes I don't want to leave the house and make the trip downtown because I'm tired. Because I do have a family and do it because I do have a day job, mm -hmm. work all day. But once I get there, I'm so glad I went. <laughs> With rare exception, right? Church on Monday, for example, you know, we use that word church in fun, but in many ways, it is a church-like experience if you think of church as an uplifting atmosphere, a community experience where we all lean on each other and make something great together, you know, kind of resonate on something harmonious, whatever. It really does lift me up. I love when I go. I, I have never had an experience of going and playing with church on Monday when I didn't feel better when it was over. Mm -hmm. And I've had times when I didn't want to play and times when I didn't feel very good physically. Maybe my ears were exhausted from the night before and I just didn't want to hear any more sound, you know, I, whatever. And maybe it's because I'm at this time in my life when I'm free of so many of those expectations that I had of those earlier years we've talked about mm -hmm. when I wanted to be this and I wanted to be that and why didn't we get the record deal or why didn't so-and-so hire me or why did I miss that tour? You know, all that kind of stuff doesn't really matter anymore. I'm just grateful each time I get to play that I get to do it again. In many ways, it's come full circle for me. It's like being back in the basement with the records. I was playing back then, not because of any expectation of what it was leading to, just because I was impelled to do it and it made me happy. And that's the way I feel about every gig now. Almost every gig. <laughs> <laughs> That's great insight. A question has been in the back of my mind ever since you mentioned your experience at North Texas. Looking back now, do you feel like had you learned that technique, had you had the, the formal training that you were lacking at the time, do you feel that it would have made you a better drummer and or made you enjoy drumming any more? than you do now? I think it would have. 
I think if I had, if I had been more mature, more focused and disciplined, if I'd had maybe voices that weren't singing my praises too much back home, maybe, but that were a little more encouraging. I mean, I mentioned the band director being very encouraging, but but sometimes I needed people to just say, you just need to learn to work harder, focus. I think it would have been different, I think, because I know today there are many things that I cannot do as a drummer that I wish that I could do. Of course, if you're sincere about that, then you go learn to do it, right? Uh, but it's harder when you have a really, really busy life to carve out the time to practice like that. So I know that there are things that I, if I had m- more technique this way or if I'd learned to read better that way, it might have led to more opportunities. I might have been a full-time professional drummer all through my life instead of the back-and-forth thing that I've been. But I'm not sad about it. There was a time when I was, but I'm not now because not only would I possibly have missed so many of the other things that I'm so grateful for, my wife, my kids, I wouldn't trade those for any gig with anybody, but also there's something about the kind of musician I am now that, you know, technique and reading and all that stuff is very important. And if I was doing it full time, I think it would be more important to me. But I have this privilege of being able to play with wonderful world-class musicians as a part-time experience and and also coming at it from not just a drummer's perspective but just a lover of the full musical experience of it type of perspective. And I think it informs the way I play and I think that's why people that use me like to use me because... I'm not the most technically proficient player by a long shot in this town, but I know I play from a place in my heart that is what makes me who I am as a musician. And they, that's what I'm told. And, I've, and I don't even have to hear it to know that. I think I've always felt it back from all those years ago in Colorado, that that's what drove me. And... That's what makes it special for me. So, you know, that's a long way of answering your question. Could it have, would it make it more fun if I had more chops and all that kind of stuff and had been more trained as a drummer? Absolutely. But what else might it have done? It might have taken something away, you know? And I think all those things, I realize as a musician, whenever I play, and especially jazz, all music truly, but jazz more than any, it's not just about technique. It's not just about how well I read. It's not just about what training I've had. It's about what kind of life I've lived and I'm still living and what I'm willing to expose of that life when I'm playing. That's kind of what I feel when I'm playing. There's a lot of stuff that's being said through me as a drummer that I can't say in any other way. Do you feel like your state of mind ever affects the way you play? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Although I do find that no matter what my state of mind is, when I begin to play, playing has a almost meditative quality to it, especially when it's with really wonderful players, which is mostly what I get to play with now. It transcends my mental state. It governs it. It takes me to a better place if I'm not in the right frame of mind. 
But yeah, I mean, <laughs> if it doesn't, or if I start in the wrong place, I tend to be a pretty happy person. And I, I think fairly even keeled. I don't have a lot of serious mood swings. But if something has made me really angry, that can come out in my playing. Or if something makes me angry while we're playing, that can come out. And I'm always a little ashamed when it happens. What would but make you angry while playing? If I feel like people aren't listening. If I feel like we're just going through the paces. It's not so much if people are making mistakes. Heck, I make them all the time. But if, if, when I feel like people have put themselves on autopilot and they, they're not cherishing the moment and the opportunity to make music and they're not respecting the audience that has given us their time when they could be anywhere else. Now, if they're all talking and yelling and not paying attention to us, then who cares, right? Mm -hmm. But I still do care about the quality of the music. But truly, when we're playing there and we have anybody that's trying to listen to us and we've all spent our time to come together, and if I feel like people are just kind of resting on some sense of laurels and not listening and don't care, it does tend to make me angry. And I have to watch myself because if I, if I let that build in me, sometimes it, it gets expressed in how I play. Maybe just in a moment of hitting something too hard, you know, <laughs> but that happens, and it, it's happened recently. And um, whenever it happens, I, I'm a little surprised at myself. I think I thought I was beyond that kind of behavior, but I'm not. <laughs> can you sense it? I mean, can you tell right away when someone is doing that, phoning it in? Yeah, I can. Of course, in all fairness, it's a very subjective thing, you know. I mean, my my sense of somebody phoning it in is going to be different from somebody else's probably. But we do work in communities where people have some fairly common perspectives on what that means. So I think I could turn to somebody and go, what's going on over there? You know, and they might go, yeah, I don't know either. You know, we don't have those conversations on the bandstand. At least I don't usually. And you know, Sometimes a musician might not be phoning it in. Sometimes they're may, they're, maybe they're just distracted. We all have complicated lives. There's a lot going on. I mean, I had a guy blow up at me on the stage one time at church on Monday years ago out of all proportion to reality of what I thought just went down. And I didn't even think anybody phoned anything in. It just something happened in a tune that he didn't like. And I think maybe he hadn't liked it the last few times we'd done it that way. And instead of ever saying anything, it just all, all boiled over in one moment. And it was pretty funny, but it was intense at the time. And, uh, but then next week he came back and he said, man, I'm sorry. I just was having a hard week. And he, and he told us about, <laughs> he told us about a gig he was on and what happened on that gig, which was really quite emotional and bizarre. And that he had just vented it through that moment. But we still, took what he said to heart and thought about how we were playing this tune and maybe made it more sensitive and took it to a little higher level. Because as I look back on it, in a way he was right that we were mailing it in a little bit because we were automatically doing something that people commonly do in a song. You know, they'll go into double time in a ballad, for example. That's what it was about at the time. So we all learned something out of that moment, you know. So he called us on it, on mailing it in, you might say. 
David Grissom said that one of the things that impacted him most about playing with Joe Ely was that Joe Ely never, ever gave it less than 100%. He he shared an experience. I think it was a gig in Germany, and it was cold, and there were three people in the bar, and it was just miserable. And it would have been pretty normal and understandable for anyone to go through the motions and how Joe played like he was playing to a crowd of 10,000. I think that's that's incredibly difficult to do and to hold yourself to that standard. And and again, like you said, living such complicated lives and in many cases dealing with less than ideal gig circumstances to go through and, and give it your all. I just really admire that. You know, there are times when someone might go, I don't have to phone it in, but the situation doesn't allow me to go to the level that I want to go to. I just have to adapt to the setting, you might say. I'm in those settings sometimes where it's like I have to play with the people I'm with. And if they're playing at a certain level that I maybe hear myself playing in a different way, maybe with more energy or whatever, but I can't go off and leave them. Mm-hmm. because I'm part of a community experience. It's about more than me. But at the same time, if you feel like people are just on autopilot, then maybe sometimes they need a little kick. <laughs> <laughs> and that can work sometimes, you know? I've seen that work. But I really appreciate what David said about Joe Ely, and I'm so grateful to play with so many players that are like that. Alejandro Escovedo's like that. He could be in a room of 10 people and just rocks the heck out of it. <laughs> Mitch Watkins is that kind of musician. Elias Hasslanger is that kind of musician. James Polk is that kind of a musician. Daniel Durham, all the guys in church on Monday. You know, so many people I've had the privilege of working with. And I think that it's brought me to that place too. It's like, I'm just so excited to get to play. I would do this even if it was just me. I'm not going to just halfway swing at this drum. <laughs> and it's not about volume or intensity. It's just I'm not going to hit it like I don't care, you know. I'm not going to leave something tuned to the place where it sounds terrible just because I don't want to take the time to make it sound better, you know. I'm going to do what I can to give it the best because the audience deserves it, the other players deserve it, I deserve it. And why am I playing at all if I don't want to do that? Very true. Scott, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate it very much. It's a great, great thing that you're doing this podcast, and I I encourage you to keep it up, and thanks for having me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you can take a moment to visit iTunes and rate this podcast. Until next time.